You can go ahead and press it. You press it? Good. Okay. <laughs> All righty. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Ruth chapter 4. If you do not have your Bible, it's okay. It's on that sheet I gave you. All the notes you need is on that sheet. So go ahead and mark it up. You didn't get a sheet, Michael. It's all you can go back in the, on the table. I'll, I'll even wait for you because you're. Is that for today? Does it say Ruth four? No. All right, go on the table. Run, Mike. Run. Um, I guess while we're waiting, uh, actually, I'll just go ahead and read um, from Ruth chapter four, verses one through six. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead. In his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. May God bless the reading of his word. Did you find it, Mike? Good. (laughs) Um, All right, so we're continuing on through Ruth. Obviously, it's it's pretty hard to believe that we're already in chapter 4. I mean, it feels like we just started. But so far, we've seen a lot of good things in Ruth, and this week is no exception. Um, So let's go ahead and just dive right in from verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. We now learn what happens with Boaz. In fact, we are intentionally drawn to focus only on Boaz at this point. After the encounter with Ruth, he goes up to the gate and sat. Some might wonder why he went to the gate. There are a few reasons for this. The first is that the gate held the highest probability of finding the nearer kinsman redeemer. One would need to enter and exit through the gate in order to go to the fields, and since it was so early in the morning, Boaz likely hoped to spot the kinsman before he headed out into the field himself. The second reason was that the gate area acted as a town hall, or even some would say a courthouse. Um, It was here social laws were discussed and enacted. By sitting at the gate, it caused others to be aware that Boaz had intentions to be involved in the court of law for some reason. Now, much to Boaz's surprise, the near kinsman came almost right away. We especially see the surprise for Boaz at the unexpected early encounter with the Redeemer. Um, We see this when the text says, And behold! Uh, It's almost an unexpected surprise that the man should appear right when Boaz arrives at the gate. Likewise, it transfers the attention of the reader from Boaz to the new character. In this, while it is almost coincidental that the man should arrive precisely at this moment, we need to remember that nothing happens by chance in the book of Ruth. And we should see God's hand moving in the story, especially when we take Boaz's oath to Yahweh to resolve the matter quickly. Um, That Yahweh is seeing that it actually gets done. Seeing the man, Boaz immediately requests that the man come and sit down with him. This 
in itself is not that interesting as the very person who needed to be present was this man. Um, what is really interesting, though, is how Boaz addresses the man. He does not call him by name. Um, the ESV translates it as friend, but the truth is it's closer to so-and-so or hey you. Hey, you. The narrator specifically does not inform us of who the man is, and neither does Boaz. Uh, The most likely reason for this is to contrast Boaz with um, this new character, a main character versus this other character. Regardless, the man does come, and he does sit with him. Now, verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Along with this, Boaz collected ten elders of the city to sit down as well. These men would act as witnesses to whatever legal transaction was going to occur. We are unsure whether would, um, what a quorum would be for the elders of the city, but ten seems to be the apparent number for this circumstance. By sitting down, they acknowledged their necessary roles for this legal transaction. So verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Most scholars recognize that the following verses from here until verse 6 represent a transcript of a court proceeding. Um, This makes sense in light of what is occurring. The entire process revolves around legality. Boaz begins with a very complex statement about the land of Elimelech. Uh, We learn that Naomi is selling said parcel of land. This, however, causes a major problem for the time period. During the time, women were not permitted to sell the land of their deceased husbands. Um, Instead, it would fall to their descendants. It would fall to their sons or even their daughters, but not to the widows. And if there were no descendants, it wouldn't fall to the widow either. It would fall to the next closest male kin. As Bloch notices, um, one of the commentators I read, this explains why the widow was such in dire straits economically during the time period and why the law cared so much for them because of certain problems such as this that would arise. So how can it be that she is selling the parcel? That's the question. Well, the word translates, translated as selling does not necessarily mean actual purchasing or selling. Instead, it can be figurative selling, um, such as when God sold Israel to their enemies. Um, but it can also mean to give or to hand over. And in this latter sense, it reflects the handing over of someone for six years to repay the debt. That is, they hand themselves over to someone to pay a debt. Um, or the handing over of land until the next year of jubilee, jubilee, when they would get the land back to pay a debt. So what then is happening with this particular statement then? What's happening? Some scholars note that it does not appear that Naomi is seeking to sell any property, but instead is, al- is allowing the parcel to be bought back. In other words, it is likely that before Elimelech left Israel, he sold his land to those outside of the family clan. Um, this was customary to do, especially when it was a difficult situation, such as the one Elimelech and his family faced during the famine. Naomi, then, would not be seeking to sell the land per se, but to allow the land to be redeemed by a kinsman and thereby used by that kinsman. In this way, the land would return to the family, though not necessarily to Naomi. Hence, Redeemer. Um, so now we come to verse 4. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Yeah, I know that's a long one. Um, we now have the second half of the first speech by Boaz. He expresses that he wanted to inform the nearer kinsman of what's going on. By going to the nearer kinsman first, he shows he is a man of integrity and well repute. Likewise, it reflects that he has the attention of the kinsman and informs the kinsman of his idea. That idea is that the kinsman should buy, redeem, the land. Boaz wants the Redeemer to redeem the land in the presence of the elders of my people. The elders may simply reflect the ten whom he had come and sit down, but it could also include others who have come by and recognize this legal transaction and are now overhearing the conversation take place. This is a very busy area, so it makes sense that they would stop and listen. One could imagine others coming and listening in on the conversation, so that's probably why he says it in this capacity. But at the same time, Boaz also makes it known that he is able to redeem if the nearer kinsman is unwilling to. Boaz does not explicitly say that he would like to do this, but it would be obvious in context to deduce his acquiescence to this idea. In this way, it all comes full circle. Boaz is willing to redeem if the other kinsman is not willing to do so. Um, The question is, what will the kinsman do in this circumstance? And that's the main question. To the long speech by Boaz, the nearer kinsman only responds with, I will redeem it. It is as simple as that. All of us at this point should have in our heads, oh no. Likewise, we should be wondering, why hasn't Boaz mentioned Ruth at all? Um, And now the answer is forthcoming. Why hasn't he? So verse 5. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now this is where Boaz turns the tides. While informing the Redeemer of the necessity of redeeming the land, he also makes it clear that the man will have to acquire Ruth the Moabite. In this, he means that the near kinsman will need to marry Ruth when he redeems the land. Now, there's a few things to notice here. The first is that Boaz identifies Ruth as the Moabite. There may be a reason for this. As we remember, the Moabites and the tribes of Israel were not close relationally. Generally, they tended to detest each other. So by reminding the kinsmen of her ethnicity, it may be a way of him getting to look unfavorably upon the deal. The second is that Boaz does not define whose widow she is. In fact, it will not be until verse 9 of this chapter that we finally learn which son was her husband. Along with this, we also see that there is a goal to provide two things. The first is redemption for the land, um, which which is very important for Israelite culture. And the second is to redeem the dead. The worst curse one could invoke in that culture was for the other name, other's name to die out. Therefore, we find here not a necessary requirement for a Goel kinsman redeemer, but the Leverite law, which would require a brother to continue the name of his brother's line by marrying his brother's wife and bearing a son. Now, technically, this was not the letter of the law. We already looked at this before, and Mike had brought that up too. Um, neither of these men were brothers of Elimelech or of his sons. They're relatives, but it doesn't say brothers. Therefore, most conclude that though it is not in the letter of the law, it certainly is within the spirit of the law to maintain the name of an individual. So while neither men were legally bound to do this, there was a moral grounding to the call. It also reminds us that Boaz is willing to take this extra step. 
But the question is, will the closer redeemer, will he take this step the way that Boaz is willing to? Ultimately, while in the story, Boaz and Naomi have great concern for Ruth and her security, right now, the narrator is pointing us to perhaps his greatest concern, or his great concern, which is the preservation of the line of Elimelech. We will see why this is the case when we come back to the conclusion of the book. For now, just remember that this moment is a very important moment, and we'll look back eventually, I promise. That's all I'm going to say about that. Verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. With this new information, the Redeemer acknowledges that he is unable to redeem the land for himself. We can be sure that the focus of the redemption is on the land and not Ruth or on Elimelech. Likewise, we see a contrast between the nearer Redeemer and Boaz. Whereas Boaz has been focused mainly on other individuals, Naomi, Ruth, even Elimelech, the man is focusing on himself. Now, Block recognizes the Redeemer has four real options. And let's really quick just think about it. He could take both land and Ruth, which would be the most honorable choice. He could take just the land and say that he will take Ruth and then end up not marrying her. But this would cause him to lose esteem among Bethlehem and especially the people. He could simply reject both proposals, thereby allowing Boaz to take over the role of Redeemer for the land and marry Ruth. This would not be very harmful to his reputation, and not irresponsible since um, much is being asked. Finally, he could accept the role of Redeemer of the land, but reject the role of the Levite marriage. In this case, he would have likely lost again some reputation, and then some... And then there could become problems later if Boaz and Ruth ended up having a son, because then their son could claim the rights to the land that he was redeeming. And as we see, um, he chose the third option and passed on both. We then learn the reason for this. Lest he impairs his own inheritance. We can't be 100% certain why he would feel his inheritance would be impaired, but there are some possible reasons. The first is that the cost of caring for Naomi, the cost of redeeming the land, and then the cost of marrying Ruth might simply have been too much um, of a financial burden, and it might have been unsound for him to do at the time. Likewise, if the man ended up having a son with Ruth, then that son would be able to claim the ownership of the land that he was redeeming. Not only this... But then that same son might be able to claim the Redeemer's land um, and ultimately cause all of his inheritance to fall into a limilex. He didn't want that problem to arise. Finally, when we consider Ruth as a Moabite, he simply may have had some xenophobia of his line having Moabite blood in it. Regardless of the reasons, the man announces his decision to forfeit the right to the land and to Ruth. This then allows Boaz to become the Redeemer and to take Ruth as his wife. And that's when we all say, yay, that's what we wanted to happen. Um, all right, so the main point. The main point of this section is to be a legal record of what occurred between Mr. So-and-so and Boaz. In it, we learn the near relative rescinds his rights to the land as well as to the moral requirements to redeem the line of Elimelech through the marriage to Ruth. This allows for Boaz to fulfill the role of redeemer, not only for the land or Ruth, but possibly even for the line of Elimelech, as well um, as if, assuming that he had a male heir. Now this leads us to some applications. The first is alternate roads. 
Within this week's text, we saw two different individuals, the first being Boaz and the second being Mr. So-and-so. Both of these individuals are important for the story of Ruth because both are able to bring some kind of redemption. What is interesting, however, is not their similarities, but their differences. First, we consider Boaz. He has been stated as and has shown he is a worthy man, a man of esteem and influence within Bethlehem. He has shown to be a faithful follower of Yahweh, invoking his name and blessings and promises. Likewise, he has shown to be a very gracious benefactor to the widows Ruth and Naomi. In these ways, we see his character, his hesed toward others, and his devout faith. Now, second, we consider Mr. So-and-so. He is the other redeemer. We are not sure what his name is, and we're not really sure of his family line. Instead, all we know for sure is that he is a redeemer of nearer relation to Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. In today's text, we also learn that he cares about his own progeny and inheritance, which they will receive through him. So much so that he is unwilling to redeem either the land or Ruth or Elimelech's line. In these two, we see a dichotomy. On the one side is the nearer kinsman, Mr. So-and-so, who seeks the road well traveled. He takes a safe path to make sure that his inheritance and his family are kept in existence. On the other side is Boaz, who takes the road that is less traveled. He takes the unsure path instead. When we think about this, it reminds us of two other individuals within the book. As we remember in chapter 1, Orpah and Ruth are told by Naomi to return home and find new husbands among the Moabites. Orpah chooses the sensible thing. She decides to go home to her family in hopes of finding a new husband. Ruth, however, chooses to follow the less sensible path, casting her fate with Naomi. As we can see, Ruth and Boaz correlate to each other, while Orpah and the nearer kinsmen correlate. What we want to consider is that neither Orpah nor the nearer kinsmen are chastised in the book for their decisions. In reality, they are probably making the most sensible decision, ones that have no great risk. No one can blame them for their decisions. One could say that they are making the more logical decision for themselves at the time. So what is fascinating then are those who made the different choices, those who decided not to take the normal route. It causes us to think of Abraham and Sarah when they were called to follow God to a land that they did not know. It requires faith, faith in the one who calls, faith in the God who has revealed himself. Sometimes in life we may be required to take an alternate route than everybody else. Part of following Jesus Christ is to take the narrow road. When it comes to our lifestyles, how we live, it requires us to make a choice between taking the normal life route or turning from that route to follow something else, something altogether other. I think that this is the challenge which is being presented to us when we consider the differences between Boaz and the nearer kinsman, Ruth and Orpah. We are being challenged to take the other road, having faith in the God who has made himself known to us. While in the book of Ruth, the focus is on these individuals taking care of other individuals, it can apply to us when it comes to faith and our call to follow after Christ. This is the encouragement for all of us. Don't waste your life following the whims of the safe course. Don't waste your life only going with what the world deems most reasonable. Instead, seek out the unreasonableness of God. 
In 1 Corinthians, we learn that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Though the world may boast in its wisdom and its strength, in the end, God is still superior, even when with what is considered his foolishness and his weakness. To follow God is the alternate route in this life, to live for his glory. So who will accept the challenge to follow Christ? Who will accept the call to live a life of faith? Not a life of blind faith. It was not blind faith for Ruth to follow Naomi. She knew Naomi, and she knew about Naomi's God, even though he had supposedly turned against her. Likewise, Boaz knew Ruth, and he certainly knows the God of Israel. None of it was blind. Instead, it was completely reasonable under the circumstances because of the evidence of God and their experiences. The choice to faith is reasonable. It is still faith, but is a faith which is logical. Again, be encouraged to follow this reasonable faith. Though the world may call it foolish, we know that the evidence is there, that God has revealed himself, and he has also made himself known. Because of this, follow this God in all things, giving all things over to the lordship of his son Jesus Christ, who gives us the different road, who redeems us from the grave. Now the second application, I think, is following the law. As has been mentioned many times already, Boaz has shown himself to be a worthy man time and time again. One way he did it recently, however, is the way he is going about all of this. We notice he does not skirt the law in order to obtain what he wants. Instead, he does what is right according to the law by first going to the nearer kinsman. This concept of justice, of following the law, is an important one for us to consider. I think that there are many times we can be as tempted as anyone else in going around the system. We, just as unbelievers, can have the temptation to handle our businesses in an unlawful way. Or in regards to the church, handle our church affairs in a way which is contrary to, let's say, our constitution. My voice is dying on me, isn't it? (laughs) Sorry, I just thought I'd mention that. In case you didn't notice. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. I know that some might think that these, uh, there's a conflation between these two ideas, but in truth they're similar. Our church constitution holds our beliefs, um, how we as a church will conduct ourselves as a congregation, as well as clarifying our beliefs. In a way, it is like the law which informs society at large how we should conduct ourselves and really does inform the world the beliefs of the society. I think... That what we see with Boaz, then, is a reminder for us to be lawful people. First, when it comes to the society at large. Obviously, this does not mean that we are to tolerate society norms which are contrary to the gospel or the scriptures. But it does remind us that we are to make sure we don't skirt around our taxes or seek to break the law knowingly, especially if the law does not conflict with the scriptures. The world needs to see that we are lawful citizens. Now that again does not mean, as I said before, that we are to um, that we are to obey the law in a way which would be contrary to the gospel. The first century Christians, for example, were martyred precisely because they went against societal norms. Where they were called to worship Caesar as Lord, they went against the law of the land and declared Christ as Lord. And for that they paid the penalty of the law of the land, which was death. They knew the penalty, and they pronounced the faith bravely in the face of death. 
There are times when such decision is necessary in this dark world, and we should be thankful that we have not faced such persecution here. Though if we do, go back to the first application point, because it makes sense for that. Um, Now, along with that, I did bring up our Constitution for a reason. All too often it can become norm to bypass constitutions and beliefs for some reason. Within Christian institutions, this has occurred most frequently among our universities. I know you're thinking, where on earth? Trust me. Most forget that the universities which are most liberal today were founded on conservative Christian principles. Go look at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of them. Um, In fact, they were originally, originally built to train pastors. Most people don't realize that. Most forget, um, part of the reason, though, that this change occurred is because the universities were lax in their constitutional statements. They had professors who were nice, who were well-liked, and though they differed theologically, than the academic school they decided to keep them despite. So now many of our universities, not just the Ivy League ones, but many Christian universities, are run by liberal scholarship. This same thing... <clears throat> The same thing as happens or can happen in our congregations for pastoral ministries and church memberships. All too often the constitutional statements are overrun because the preacher is nice or the new member is kind. So despite the pastor or new member not having the same theological views as the constitution, both are accepted because how important are those doctrinal statements anyway, we think. If this keeps happening, though... Eventually, the church is overrun with those who are altogether different than the foundation of the congregation itself, which is the Constitution. So the point of all this, the point is we need to be people who follow the law in order in two capacities. The first is society at large, assuming the law again, I'm going to keep on repeating this, does not go against the gospel of the scriptures. And the second is within our own congregation makeup, how our Constitution is written. We need to make sure we understand both. We understand the law of the land as well as the constitution of the church, which should be the foundation for the congregation. So maybe this is an encouragement to look over the constitution, make it a point to read it over once a year. Each of us should maybe do this. Make notes. Ask questions during our business meetings, making sure that we are all on the same page on how we define things within the Constitution, to fine-tune it, making sure that we are all in one accord. Also, it reminds us that the Constitution itself is an encouragement, remembering the shoulders on which we stand and the beliefs which unify all of us. So just be encouraged to look at the Constitution. Okay? Okay. Okay. Everyone's okay. All right, not by chance. Nothing has been by chance within the book of Ruth. Everything has happened for a reason. In every chapter, we have seen the hand of God moving towards some particular end. There is the cause of the event, which is God. And because he is the cause, he has a means and a method to bring all the things he has caused to its appointed end. So So, of course, we are going to discuss providence. There are a lot of themes within the book of Ruth, and providence is definitely one of the major ones. Because of that, one would argue that it is important for us to return to the theme as much as we can while in the book, and to consider it when it occurs. In this week, we noticed it in two particular areas. The first was when the man just so happened to come when Boaz sat at the gate. Even the text presumes a false shock over the fact that he came. 
it begs us to recognize that it was not happenstance. It is too coincidental for that. Instead, we are to see the hand of God working for a particular purpose in the story. The second is with the Redeemer's response. We know that the man could have made the decision to redeem the land and to marry Ruth. Instead, he chose not to. This response is in itself an act of providence and reflects the providence found in response of Boa to Ruth, Boaz to Ruth at the threshing floor in chapter 3. In both cases, providence stepped in in a different way. For Boaz, it was his positive response to Ruth, and here it is the, neg- uh, the nearer kinsman's negative response to Boaz. All of this reminds us of the providence of God in a minuscule ways. There are many individuals who believe that God is too busy with the rest of the universe to care for us. In everyday circumstances, it can be believed that God simply isn't interested and or is simply too busy with more important things than each of us in our individual lives. If we see anything in the book of Ruth, we see that this view could not be further from the truth. Instead, we see a God who is involved in everyday life, a God who does bless each of us individually, whether it is with food or financially or even healing or helping. Our God is not only an eternal God outside of time and space, but an imminent God who is with us, guiding our steps, walking with us, carrying us along the journey. Just as with Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, God blesses us as well. This does not mean that God is some cosmic genie who grants us our every wish. Instead, we recognize that he is our provider. He takes care of us in our times of need. He loves us as his children. And because of this, he seeks to bless us according to his will and for his glory to be displayed in our lives. Now tell me, when you really consider the providence of God, doesn't it just give you a certain sense of awe? Doesn't it fill you with a kind of peace and joy, knowing whatever the world throws at you, you're not alone? Knowing that even if the world should turn its back, God is still there with you if you are in Christ. Doesn't it give you joy knowing that the God of the universe, who holds the entire cosmos in his hands by the power of his word, hears you and loves you as his child if you are in Christ Jesus? As a Christian, there is nothing which can give us greater peace than knowing the providence of God. So be encouraged by it. Be encouraged to consider the relationship you now have as a child of God if you are in Christ Jesus. To consider the ramifications of having our Father in heaven and seeing his provision in your times of need. Be encouraged to face today, knowing you are not alone in this life, no matter what this life, no matter what this world may say. All right, I think we we got one more. I can do it. (laughs) No, I'm good, thanks. All right, the gospel. All of this, (laughs) all of this leads to the gospel. I'm all right, I think. Thanks so much. And Ellen, who said it first? Um... All of this leads us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The great gospel of redemption for the glory of God, this gospel which shows us not only our need, but the one who provides for us in our need. The gospel of Christ, which brings us our greatest peace. It all begins with our origins. All things were created ex nihilo, by the power of the word of God. 
He brought forth this cosmos out of nothing. Last of all the cosmos he created was humanity, which he created to be his image bearers. Because God is a God of love, of reason, he knows, can be known. He has personhood and he shows Hesed, we can as well. It's here we find all traces of worth, all traces of dignity and sanctity to human life. Like God, however, we are also able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience and life, or to choose not to follow God in disobedience and sin and death. Ultimately, we chose the latter and have continued to choose that ever since. And it is because of this we have broken relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world around us. It is because of this humanity continues to grow and continues to have a true moral guilt before a very worthy and righteous God. This is, human tr- this is for humanity true human sorrow, to be in this darkness without any hope from within ourselves. Yet, hope is not foreign to us. Instead, we have hope because God exists. And not only this, but he has not been silent. He has spoken his word and sent his light into the darkness, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. Christ lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is by his wounds we are healed. His blood justifies us before our righteous God. We are no longer declared guilty before our God. Instead, we stand redeemed in righteousness. His victory, then, becomes our victory over sin and, lastly, over death. We are to be obedient, though, in two things. The first is repentance. We are to turn from our sins and turn toward God. We are to live a lifestyle according to the scriptures for the glory of God and his holy name. We are to walk in step with the spirit of God in us. In this way, we are to bear good fruit in our lives by keeping with repentance. Now the second, though, is faith in Christ. We are to recognize our dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. We cannot attain salvation on our own. None can reach the glory of God on their own. Instead, we need to place our faith in Christ for our justification before God by what he has done. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. And this is where your notes end. Sorry. (laughs) For those who are disobedient, there is only judgment. None can stand before God with their own deeds in hand. Even our best deeds are as filthy rags compared to his holiness and righteousness of God. Therefore, there is only condemnation for those who are outside of Christ. For those who are obedient, however, there is no longer condemnation. We can live a lifestyle for the glory of God instead of sin. We experience the love of God reserved only for his Son. We inherit an eternal kingdom of peace with our God forever. Let this be the final encouragement for you, that we are now able to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, we are able to turn away from the path of destruction we are on and follow the road of faith founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged by this, for down the narrow road, there is love, there is grace, there is mercy, and there is peace forevermore. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Ruth, which reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you 
for those in the story who we can emulate, who we can seek to follow as they follow you according to your will. And Lord, we ask that you would go ahead and reveal yourself to us, that we would know you, experience you, and to live for you. We thank you for all that you have done, and we ask again for your blessing upon each and every one of us. In your Son's name, amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, number 505, and we'll sing all three. Thank you.